good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the rollout of our newest policy paper, Decades of Air Force Underfunding Threaten America's Ability to Win. For over 30 years now, modernization of the Department of the Air Force has been deferred due to other U.S. Department of Defense priorities. In fact, the Air Force budget has been less than the Navy and the Army's for the last 30 years in a row. Decades of fighting insurgencies in Afghanistan and Iraq resulted in the Army receiving over $1.3 trillion more than the Air Force in the 20 years following 9-11. Now that's an average of over $66 billion a year more than the Air Force. And it came at the expense of modernizing the Air Force. The result of the anemic funding for new aircraft and spacecraft, combined with a higher than expected usage and demand of current aircraft, has worn Air Force hardware and its personnel. Because of the combination of these realities, the U.S. Air Force today is the smallest, oldest, and least ready in its history. Our Air Force has less than half its fighter force and only one-third of the bombers it had in 1990. Yet, its latest proposed budget divests about a thousand more additional aircraft than it buys over the next five years. That's going to create an even smaller, older, and even less ready force. Now, the reason it's planning to do so is because current and future Air Force budgets are not at the levels required to meet the needs of our defense strategy. At the same time, both threats and demands for Air Force capabilities and capacity by the warfighting combatant commanders are growing. The fact of the matter is that the nation requires much more from the Air Force than the resources allocated to it allow. So, the Air Force is forced to do the only thing within its power it can do. Divest current force structure in an attempt to invest in future requirements. Unfortunately, this approach has never worked as the Air Force has no control of the money it saves through divestments. It all goes back into the U.S. Treasury and it's not earmarked for future Air Force spending. Decades of Air Force divest to invest decisions that were the result of inadequate budgets are exactly what's forced it to choose between modernization, force size, and readiness. Unfortunately, the increased demand for Air Force capabilities without adequate investment has resulted in the reduction in all three to precarious levels. So the challenge is, what's the plan to build back our Air Force to the capacity necessary to meet the challenges specified in our defense strategy, while also innovating to better prepare for the threats of tomorrow? The Mitchell Institute has been talking and writing about these risks for years.
But the report we're releasing today addresses a root cause for why the Air Force is too old and too small. Part of the rationale for the paper was to assemble the facts in one place as a reference for the debates that occur on defense spending in Congress, the Department of Defense, and the public. The other part is to ensure Air Force members are aware of these facts so that they may be better prepared in making the case for getting the resources required to meet the demands that the combatant commands and our U.S. national defense strategy places upon them. Now we're going to drive, dive into the details in just a moment, but before we do, let me introduce the two gentlemen that I have here with me today. First, we have Lieutenant General retired Joseph Gus Costella, recently the Air Force's Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations. In this role, Gus led the development and implementation of policy directly supporting the Air Force's global operations, force management, weather, training, and readiness across the airspace and cyber domains. Next, we have my co-author of the report, retired Colonel Mark Gonzo Gunzinger. Gonzo is the Director of Future Concepts and Capability Assessments here at the Mitchell Institute. In the Air Force, Gonzo flew more than 3,000 hours in the B-52 and also served as a director on the National Security Council staff, as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, and in other Department of Defense leadership roles. So to kick off today's conversation, Gonzo, um, would you please give the audience a brief overview on just what is the content of our report? Thank you, General Latour and General Gostella. So, start off a few comments on why we wrote this report. For years, Air Force leaders have been saying their services aircraft inventory was the smallest and the oldest in its history. But the thing is, every year, they were right. Our report assesses how 30 years of chronic underfunding has created a high-risk Air Force that is not sized to fight a war with China and meet other defense strategy requirements. And this is a problem for all the services, not just the Air Force, because no joint force operation can be conducted without forces that the Air Force and the Space Force, for that matter, bring to the fight. And our report also addresses why the Air Force needs a Foresizing methodology that clearly communicates its requirements and then the risk created by falling short of those requirements. So this slide is a snapshot that represents trends in the Air Force's uh, inventories since the Cold War. And we have more in the report, but this is just a snapshot. The first columns show its total fighter and bombers uh, in 1989. The second columns show they declined by about 40% in the space of a decade. And then the third columns are today's total inventories. The fourth columns show primary mission aircraft only, which are aircraft assigned to combat squadrons after subtracting test training and other non-combat tails. And finally, the last columns reduce those totals by applying today's mission-capable rates. So this all means the Air Force has about 59 mission-capable bombers and 975 fighters cover its global operational requirements. And the actual number of combat stories they can fly every day could be even less, depending on mission durations and 
turn times between sorties. For example, if I had to fly a B-52 from Guam into the South China Sea and back, I might only get about six-tenths of a sortie per day per aircraft. Now, I also mentioned an aging force. Overall, the average age of the Air Force's aircraft is over 29 years. Its A-10s have hit the 41-year mark. Its F-16 and F-15 fleets have hit 30 years, and its B-52 bombers, which I flew, and KC-135 tankers are over 60 years old on average. Point is, if we fight China with a force that is this old and lacks enough aircraft, aircraft are designed for peer conflict, then we should expect attrition rates we haven't seen since World War II. And the Air Force today lacks the aircraft and experienced air crews to replace those losses. Now, this is a snapshot of how that force stacks up against DoD's very own defense strategy, which requires the Air Force to size for home on defense, nuclear deterrence, appear conflict, and deter a lesser aggressor elsewhere. Now, those are all additive requirements. So, on this slide, we added up demands for fighters and bombers, shown in the third column, which shows the Air Force runs out of combat tails before it runs out of requirements. And then in the fourth column, we add forces needed to credibly deter or, if necessary, fight a Russia that takes advantage of our engagement in a Chinese fight in the Indo-Pacific. And you can see how fighter and bomber shortfalls, everything above the dashed line on this slide, could invite the kind of opportunistic aggression that the defense strategy actually seeks to deter. And remember, no other service can compensate for these shortfalls. No service can respond within hours instead of days or even weeks with a mass needed to blunt Chinese aggression. And the first seven to 10 days of a fight with China could determine our success or our failure. Of course, combat effectiveness is more than how many sorties a force can generate. Its mix of capabilities is also critical. The Air Force has been very clear it needs a fifth-generation combat force for modern high-end conflicts, and that's shorthand for a force with the survivability, advanced sensors, and computing-powered other capabilities, F-22s, F-35s, B-2s, and a future B-21 bring to the fight. Now, on this side, we compared the Air Force's original plans to field F-22s and F-35s with its actual buys to show how progress toward a fifth-gen force has been very slow. DoD's budget-driven decisions to end F-22 acquisition early is a key reason for this, as are budget-driven F-35 production rate cuts. Now, next year's proposed budget is a perfect example of this. The Air Force has asked for 33 F-35s in fiscal year 2023 instead of the 60 it bought in 2021 and 48 is buying this year. Why? Because of budget constraints. It doesn't have the money to buy more. Now, projected forward, you can see on this slide, the Air Force might have less than 45% of its originally planned fifth-gen fighters in the same time frame when Indo-PACOM and the DNI has said that China might be ready to make a move on Taiwan. This is not the Air Force we need. It is not a force that wins. So on to their main question. Why is the Air Force so small and old? The truth is, Budget shortfalls have been the most significant driver of force cuts and modernization delays that have hollowed out the service. American airmen and women fought Desert Storm in 1991 with a robust force that had been modernized in the 1980s. 
but the desire for defense budget peace dividend and subsequent budget drills decimated that force. And filling the hole created by that 30-year modernization holiday will require growing the Air Force budget by at least 3 to 5% over inflation for a decade or more. But that's not what we're hearing from DAD, which continues to repeat the same old bromides that we've heard for 30 years. The Air Force and the other services must divest to invest, uh, trade capacity for capabilities, and so on. The truth is, today, the Air Force needs new capabilities and more capacity, and that requires more budget. It cannot further stretch the lives of many of its aging aircraft, and it cannot further upgrade its old aircraft enough to allow them to survive in a peer conflict. So our report also addresses DOD's harmful practice of giving Congress and the American people a false picture of resources the Air Force can use to organize, train, and equip its forces. We're talking about pass-through funding, which is a term that describes funding appropriated as part of the Air Force's budget that really goes to non-Air Force organizations and programs. Now, this, this table is taken directly from DOD's fiscal year 2023 official budget briefing, which implies the Air Force's budget is the largest in DOD. The reality is what DOD reported includes $40.1 billion in funding in FY23 alone that would pass through the Air Force's budget. Money the Air Force cannot use to buy new aircraft, maintain its readiness, or, or modernize. And just for context, uh, $40 billion could buy 400 new F-35As, or could more than buy back the 1,463 aircraft the Air Force is forced to divest over the next flight app because of a lack of budget, which is only going to partially replace with 467 new aircraft. So this practice also obscures how resources have been allocated to the services. Amazingly, the myth that the Army, Navy, and Air Force each receive about a third of the defense budget still pops up from time to time. But as you can see from the blue line in this chart, which excludes that pass-through I just talked about, the Air Force has long been below a 33% share. And the Army's budget since 2002 alone add up to well over a trillion more than what the Air Force received in funding. Now, that trillion could have modernized the Air Force's two legs of the nuclear triad by buying and sustaining for 40 years a new ICBM force and a new stealthy bomber twice over. So we put pass-through funding where it belongs as part of DOD's defense-wide spending shown by the purple line on this chart, which includes budgets for defense agencies and other non-service organizations. And that shows the Air Force's real budget has actually been in fourth place after defense-wide spending. So drilling down just one more level, this shows the Air Force's new aircraft buys over the last decade have been flat despite DOD's strategic shift towards deterring and defeating peer aggression. That's true however you cut it as a uh, percentage of the service's total budget shown by the red line or in dollars shown by the blue columns. So as you can see, the Air Force was able to allocate less than 8% of its total budget to buy new aircraft year after year, which was entirely due to a lack of funding, not a lack of requirements. So to wrap up, we offer five recommendations that will help break the Air Force's budget-driven spiral toward a hollow force. First, 
shift pass-through to DOD's non-service budget line so decision makers have the right site picture of the Air Force's resources. DOD and Congress should also prioritize funding capabilities and forces that are most capable of defeating Chinese aggression in the Pacific. And since that fight will be predominantly in the air, space, cyberspace, and at sea, then that's where their resources should go. Now that's going to require real growth in the Air Force's budget, and that growth should be used to reduce risk as quickly as possible by buying next-generation systems that are already in production, like advanced munitions, F-35s, and of course the uh, B-21 is soon going to be rolling off the production line. And finally, the Air Force would benefit from a force sizing construct that would fully communicate its requirements and the risks it is now taking to the Congress. To sum up, we wrote this report to provide an evidence-based argument for why D&D and Congress should reverse decades of Air Force underfunding so it can build the force we need, the force that can win. The Air Force must break out of this deadly iron triangle of trading off its readiness modernization capacity to make ends meet every year. And that's going to require more budget. Because its readiness is already less than it should be, it's already traded off its SX capacity, and it cannot further delay replacing its aging forces. Back to you, General Deptula. Well, thanks very much, Gonzo. Um, General Gastella. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. And General Deptula, Gonzo, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, share the uh, stage with you guys again here at the, at the Mitchell Institute and really to talk about air and space power, something near and dear to our hearts, and, um, and uh, it's such an important topic. You know, the, this is a really good paper. I think this should be mandatory reading for the youngest airmen all the way up through the top leadership of the Department of Defense and over on the Hill for anyone that cares about our nation's security uh, and the future of our, our, of our department. It's that important and it's that, uh, it's that critical. You know, I left the Air Force recently and it's still the best Air Force in the world. The, the airmen and the guardians that serve our nation are a national treasure. And what they do every day to defend our nation and to, to, to buy down risk around this world and to deter threats is astonishing. Uh, and they've, uh, they've done such a phenomenal job. America expects that to them, but it's in, from them. But it's important, though, that we give them the tools they need to be successful in the future. And that's absolutely going to be at risk uh, if, we, if we don't address this, this budget situation as discussed. You know, I think America is used to an incredibly effective Air Force. You know, from the success that many Americans, at least in my generation, saw and witnessed and were part of from Desert Storm, someone here happens to be a key architect of that successful air campaign, to the how well air power did in the, the, uh, the, Gulf, the second Gulf War, if you will, the uh, Iraqi freedom, how well air power did in deliberate force and allied force in Libya, and how well we've sustained the counterinsurgency fight and the counter-violent extremists, and the counter-terrorism fights, the wars of our generation, all of that has been underpinned by air power. The amazing evacuation of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people out of Afghanistan, politics aside, our air mobility fleet did an amazing job. In addition to all the success we've realized in the air, the Air Force has done something that's very, very important for the nation that you don't see every day, and that is we've underpinned the most critical aspect, which is our nuclear deterrent. We don't have one, we have two legs of our, of our nuclear triad 
and the, the nuclear command and control, a critical aspect to our long-term success and, and defense as a nation. And so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that stuff is at risk in the future if we don't address it. And I'm, Lonzo, I'm really glad you brought up what I call the, that iron triangle of where money is spent in any service. And as an, as an old engine room guy, basically as a colonel and as a one-star, where I built a multiple POMs for the Air Force, budgets for the Air Force, there's only three places to go for money. Modernization, readiness, or, or force structure, capacity, size, if you will. That's the only place to go for big money in any service. Well, we already know we clearly need to modernize. We need the capabilities like F-35. We need the B-21. We need the F-15EX. We need to replace AWACS. We need to modernize the nuclear triad. We need uh, combat collaborative aircraft. We have to have that force that, that we've discussed in public many times over. So where do we go for that money? Well, let's look at readiness. As was discussed before, our readiness, we are a ready Air Force today, but we're barely ready. We're at the cusp of descending below readiness levels that are un, that'll be ineffective for our nation. Look at the flying hours alone. Let's just talk flying hours. Flying hours today, our young air crew are out there are flying less than half of the flying hours that I flew or General Deptula or, or Gonzo flew when we were at our prime. And flying is kind of important. Yes, simulators do a really good job. It's no doubt that we get a lot of valuable training out of that. But air crews still need to fly. And they're flying very old airplanes and they're flying less. So we are at the limit of what money we can take out of readiness. So then we turn to the one last area of that triangle and that's the capacity of our Air Force, the size. And well, let's just look at the, what's being asked of our Air Force today. Right now today, we're being asked to provide air power around the entire globe. Every combatant command wants air power. CENTCOM still in need of air power. Even though we've come down from hundreds of thousands of ground forces there, they still need air power to, to, to keep threats under control in the Middle East. We have clearly a threat uh, that we need to counter and to be a part of NATO in the UCOM theater. And then overlay that with the demands from Indo-PACOM and the national defense strategy. We have to have a credible presence to deter aggression in, in, the, China, in the China regime, in the, China, uh, in, the, in the theater there. And then lastly, what's the most important theater of all? It's our America's homeland. And air power defends every major metropolitan uh, city in America today. And, uh, and, and that demand signal is not going away from those customers. And then, so do you overlay that though with there aren't little pockets of the Air Force that are in demand. It's every major force element is in demand. Other services have certainly have some acute areas. The Air Force, every big area within the Air Force is in some significant demand. Fighters, bombers, our airlift, our airlift team, certainly our ISR, both our, our traditional ISR, air-breathing ISR that's designed for lower-end fights, but also the high-end ISR capabilities. How about air warning, airborne warning and control, or AWACS aircraft? They're always in demand around the globe, and they are a fleet that desperately needs to be replaced. How do you replace them as, you're, as they're in such demand? The, and let's not forget the other critical war fighters that are out there in the Air Force, and they don't fly or fix airplanes. It's the agile combat support airmen that sustain and generate air power from those bases. We've opened bases, but we don't close them. And that's because air power is in demand around the globe. And as a result of those demands, there's nowhere to go inside the triangle for the Air Force's money. There's nowhere to go to achieve that modernization goals that the Secretary and the Chief want to achieve. And so as a result, it points to nothing but one thing, and that is the Air Force, the Department of the Air Force, has to be funded 
commensurate with the level of ambition of our nation and what's expected of it. And so, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for the chance to chat with you guys today and look forward to this uh, ongoing debate. Well, um, first, thanks, Gonzo, for that overview. And uh, Gus, I, he, one of the reasons you could tell we had him on is that he can speak directly to the actual demands uh, from the combatant commanders that we have today. And that was uh, an excellent summary. So let's dig into a little bit more detail right now. Uh, and what I want to do is kind of take this up to the top um, and uh, talk a bit about strategy. I, you know, we, we've talked about the Department of Defense uh, uh, strategy. And, and what it says is that we face a myriad of challenges. Um, I, I, I won't reiterate all of them. But the fact of the matter is, the current strategy only plans on fielding a force capable of defeating aggression by a single peer adversary while deterring other threats. So we essentially, over the last three decades, have devolved, I won't say evolved, but devolved from a two war fighting strategy to a one war fighting strategy. Um, should we think about returning back to a two war force sizing construct or strategy that would get us closer to a force that could credibly deter and, if necessary, win regardless of who posed us with challenges? Uh, it, it's open to either of you, but Gus, why don't you jump in there first? Well, I, I absolutely think we need to relook at that force sizing construct because the one thing that it does, a two, a, a two war construct, allows us to better get after the very demands that we have day to day. And, and, and not only does it have to be the right size, it has to be a credible force. And the thing about a two-war construct is it doesn't have to be uniformly applied across the Department of Defense. What services are most critical in the future fights, and how big should they be? What are the relative values that they provide? What are the deterrent values, and what are the war-winning values that they provide in the likely campaigns of the future against the threats that we see out there every day? The air and maritime-centric theater in, in the Pacific. The, the, the exact things that we're seeing in the Middle East and in Europe right now, what does that demand? It demands a, an air force that's sized appropriately for a two-war two fight, or at least a fight to handle today's threats. Very good. Gonzo, your thoughts? In Europe, it's a different case. Be air, land, space, and cyber-centric. But notice I said air for both of those theaters. Why is that? Well, the Army should focus on Europe as it's pacing threat for sizing shape its forces. The Navy and the Marine Corps should size on the Indo-Pacific as they are doing now to size and shape their forces. But for the Air Force, we need to size and shape it for both theaters. Why? Because only air power and space power can respond, as I said earlier, in hours to an invasion by Russia, the Baltic States, or uh, an invasion of Taiwan by, uh, by China not days or weeks that required to deploy uh, surface forces into theater and, and begin the fight. American air power can go on the offensive within hours against China, against Russia. And that's going to be critical to blunting their offensive and then halting it, giving it time for allies and other forces to close on theater and so on. Without that blunting power provided by air power, we're going to lose. Yeah, no, I think. Um the points that you bring up are extraordinarily important, um, and it, it is going to take 
objective leadership in the Department of Defense to look at that in terms of how do we optimize all the forces. We need to have the strongest Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Space Force in the world. Got it. But we also need to pay attention to correcting uh, some of the decline, particularly in the Air Forces, and that's the reason why we brought up this report that's occurred over the last three decades. Now, the reason that we devolved slowly and frankly, without a whole lot of thought, discussion, or debate about the merits of shifting from a two-war strategy to a one-war strategy was because of the perception of lessening of threats and the reduced potential of war that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union. The decades of the 90s were followed by 20 years of counterinsurgency warfare that was not existential to our existence, but it sapped enormous resources out of the Department of Defense. Meanwhile, adversaries that could pose an existential threat grew in both capacity and capability to the point where today many postulate that the U.S. would lose a conflict with China in the South China Sea. Regardless of how we got here, uh, could each of you talk a bit about how do we resolve this resourcing challenge? Gonzo, we'll let you go first this time. Sorry. Okay, so the, that's a, an excellent point. Uh, our strategy is budget-driven. When you hear the words, well, this strategy and the force structure that we are uh, briefing you on is a budget in form, that means budget-constrained. And the problem is no one in DoD are really doing the cross-service, the cross-domain trade-offs on a cost-effectiveness basis to determine what will reduce risk most for joint force operations as a department as a whole. Instead, we're still stuck in this old stovepipe uh, uh, planning system, which gives each service a budget target at the beginning of the year, and then they balance within their own stovepipes uh, capabilities and programs and forces that they can afford, which makes no sense whatsoever. That's why we see the kind of trade-offs, uh, Peter to Rob Paul kinds of uh, uh, trade-offs where the Air Force wants to invest in fighters, well, it's got to get rid of some old fighters. That might not be the best answer for DUD as a whole. Absolutely. Gus? No, it's, a, it's an excellent point. You know, and, I, and I, I have to say, the Air Force's leadership has done a phenomenal job with the budget that they have. The, our programmers, our future guys in the Air Force and in the top leadership of the Air Force, they have done exactly what they can with the money they have been given. The problem is the, what's being asked of the Air Force and then what's being funded are such a tremendous gap, there's nowhere else to go. Our programmers over the years have turned over every rock in the Air Force to find money to find out where it can be better applied for critical combat capability. There's no more rocks to turn over. And so, uh, so it's, it's the reality of the, of the demands on our force today that, our, that the DOD needs to look at. And we really need to have the hard conversations. What are the roles and missions that every service needs to be doing? How should they be resourced? Where do we get the most bang for the buck? Those are important conversations that we have to have, or we will not be successful as an Air Force or as a department. No, that's very good. And uh, I, those of you who are uh, recurring listeners will know that we've called for a roles and missions review, but we also know that there's absolutely 
no service in the Department of Defense except the Air Force who wants to support a roles and missions review. And I dare say there are probably some in the Air Force that don't want to see that either. But that's another discussion area. Let me summarize, if I may, uh, the alternatives that, frankly, I've described in a variety of different venues um, over the years that are still relevant today. But to put them into place requires strong DOD leadership. We've got four plausible alternatives for resolving this discrepancy that we're talking about. First, we could increase the defense budget. But quite frankly, that's not going to happen. Second, we could lower the expectations of the national defense strategy. That's not going to happen either. Third, we could accept the growing strategy resource mismatch. That's potentially disastrous. Or four, we could start evaluating defense capabilities, as you described, Gonzo, in terms of the desired effects that they contribute to meeting the needs of our defense strategy. Now, options one and two are pragmatically and politically unrealistic. Option three is what we've been doing for the last two decades, and it's becoming untenable in the face of growing military threat capabilities, particularly those of China that everyone's well aware of. And option four, while it's difficult, is entirely feasible. The point is that even without top-line defense budget increases, applying a cost-per-effect assessment would clearly highlight areas where internal monetary shifts between programs and, frankly, between services will allow the prioritization of the smartest investment priorities. And such assessments need to happen Again, as Gonzo just reiterated, across all the services, and it needs to focus on mission effects, not parochial service control, absent meaningful results. Now, let me give you an example, because examples are always illustrative. And that's the Army's pursuit of a new land-based hypersonic missile at about 45 to $50 million a shot along with the onerous basing requirements, difficulty in rapidly deploying, and unlikely for our allies to host. Now, is that the best use of DOD resources? When aircraft moving at hundreds of miles an hour, over thousands of miles in less than a day, net the same mission results more rapidly, more effectively, more survivably, and more efficiently. Those are precisely the kinds of assessments that need to occur where mission demand is on the rise and available dollars are in decline. So let's shift now and talk a bit about the capabilities and capacity that are necessary to win against China. Um, our report focuses uh, and addresses forces and capabilities that are needed to deter Chinese aggression and win if we have to go to a fight. If DOD's strategy is really about China, 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 what capabilities does it need to accelerate or ramp up an acquisition? And more importantly, why? Either of you, jump in there. Well, no, I, uh, that's a great, great question. You know, it's funny, I was in, I was in a, not too long ago, I was in a meeting in the Pentagon, and uh, it was, we were offline a little bit, and one of the, the, the senior civilian DOD leaders kind of remarked, you know, wasn't anyone thinking uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago about this high of the future fight, you know? And I chimed in, I said, yeah, one service was. It's called the United States Air Force. As a matter of fact, we lost a service chief 
for thinking too far ahead. And a secretary. And a secretary. And we curtailed a, a buy of an aircraft, the F-22, that would be incredibly effective today in a, in a China campaign. Uh, and, and so we are living with the failure to think uh, in, in, into the future. And so without a doubt, we need those high-end capabilities that, 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 that the Mitchell Institute and the Air Force leadership has, has said that we need. But we also need more than that. We need our air fields to be defended. We need to be able to successfully generate air power. And we need, we need investment in infrastructure and in also defense. It's joint defense. And, and so a lot of those things will, will allow us to be successful against China, but it starts with funding the Air Force at the level that it needs to be. Gonzo? Yeah, we can win against China. There's no, no question about that. But we're going to have to start maximizing our investments in capabilities that are in production today. We're not taking advantage of all the F-35s that could be produced, which, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. Uh, I think our modernization clock is running slower than China's. We need to maximize our buy of precision munitions, which are already way too low. Uh, and we're seeing the uh, uh, results of uh, another country who did not have enough uh, PGMs uh, on part of Russia and Ukraine today and the kinds of problems that, that creates. We do not want to be in that situation. F-35s, uh, B-21s are going to be uh, rolling off the line fairly soon. And you know, there's a lot of money associated with actually buying those aircraft. And there's going to be a lot of pressure on that program to take some of that money, just some of that money, and, and put it into other capabilities of sustaining readiness. That should not happen. That is our deterrence bomber. That is our China deterrence bomber. We shouldn't allow that to happen. So maximize investment in capabilities that we need this decade, not in some theoretical 2035 uh, a plus time frame. We can do that. Very good. Now, one of the DOD's practices that's helped drive the Air Force into the trap of losing capacity and still not modernizing is this notion of divesting to invest. Um, is this a bankrupt approach, uh, pun intended, to developing the Air Force our nation needs? And if so, why? Uh, it's an absolute bankrupt approach, no, no question about it. It made sense back when we were doing the bottom-up review in, in 1993. We did have excess capacity given the uh, end of the Soviet Union and so forth and so on. But we've traded that capacity off year after year after year, and the savings either did not come back to the Air Force, or they were used for other purposes, or they were nowhere near enough to fund the modernization we needed. Now, we're not saying Mitchell isn't saying it's a bad idea to divest old iron, old aircraft. We're saying, no, we should by replacing them with new. Don't dig your capacity hole deeper before you start to dig your way out. Yeah, let me reiterate um, uh, here. Uh, and then, Gus, I'll, I'll give you a chance to talk. Uh, but I think all of us agree that the Air Force uh, should divest its older force structure. Um, however, one of the problems that the Department of Defense seem to have is they do this in a stovepipe way. For instance, they, we retire old bombers inside the Air Force because they're, quote, too expensive to operate. Yet, if you compare them to other force projection assets, um, they're cheap at 10 times the cost relative to doing it in another way. Um, 
So thinking across stovepipes, across the Department of Defense, what forces and capabilities ought to be leading candidates for divestiture or reduced investment and why? And thoughts from either of you on that? Well, I just want to say one thing about the, you know, the force sizing. You, know, you don't have to sit here and believe air power and space power experts about the size of the Air Force. You know where you should go to determine what that size should be? The joint force, the customer that uses the air power. Look at the demand signal coming from them. You don't have to listen to a service chief or a service secretary or the old A3. Listen to the demand signal coming from the joint force. And the demand signal is clear. Every combatant command has been assigned a responsibility to buy down risk and execute a mission across the globe. I mentioned them before, CENTCOM, Indopaycom, UCOM, NORAD NORTHCOM, SOUTHCOM, STRATCOM, all of them have requirements in their theaters and every one of them is arguing and demanding and beating the table for air power. There isn't a well to go to anymore. So the thought that we can divest capability and just get smaller and buy the new stuff is, is, is flawed. We need to replace the, the, the capabilities that we have now to just to satisfy the very, very demands that are being placed on the service by the joint customer. In terms of uh, divestitures, uh, definitely need to take a look at DOD's excess infrastructure, basic capacity and so forth back here in CONUS. Uh, that could be traded off to expand our infrastructure overseas to be able to uh, implement uh, uh, ACE and other concepts for hub and spoke bases that will reduce the threat, the risk of attacks by uh, Chinese and Russian uh, uh, cruise missiles and ballistic missiles and so forth. Non-survivable capabilities, be they fairly new or old, uh, should have a hard look at those capabilities. Rotary wing systems that are no longer going to be survivable in contested and highly contested areas. Uh, armor, do we have too much armor in our nation? That is a, a question we need to take a hard look at. Uh, people, uh, we still have an excess of people, especially overhead within the Pentagon itself, a civilian personnel pulling down paychecks uh, every month to be used for war fighting uh, capabilities. These are the kinds of uh, trade-offs that uh, deity really needs to look at, but it doesn't seem to have an appetite for that. Can I make one last comment sure. on that when you ask about what we should consider getting rid of? Uh, get, why don't we get rid of things that we can quickly buy back? You know, how long does it take to build an air or space power expert that can fight those, fight those missions? And in the highly technical domains of air and space? How long does it take to build those experts? Those young airmen on the airfields that can fix a highly complicated ESA radar or an electronic jamming suite or a high-end, or even operate those high-end uh, RPAs or high-end fighters or bombers. It takes many, many years and millions of dollars of investment. So once you get rid of it, you don't buy it back equally. What services can you buy back capability very quickly, where it's very expensive to sustain them over time, but also very quick to replenish them if needed, if, if the conflict comes up. Or I think perhaps put them in the garden reserve. Or, or perhaps that. Uh, but without a doubt, it's, it's something that has to be examined. Right. You know, I'll, I'll say one last thing. Uh, new old. The Army has said publicly, we cannot afford new old capabilities, by which they mean just continue to buy newer versions of old weapon systems designed for uh, uh, 
threat environments of yesteryear. But we still have some Air Force programs to buy new old. Those, uh, I think, ought to be candidates for reduction as well. No, very good. Um, it has been a great discussion so far. What I'd like to do is uh, open it up to our audience for uh, their questions and uh, address them to uh, either one of our uh, panelists or myself um, or all of us. Uh, so to get this started, we have one for uh, General Gastella. Uh, so General Gastella, we've talked a lot about the Air Force's growing force capacity shortfalls. I'd like to ask, if we don't fix this capacity issue, what are the risks to our national security, not just Air Force operations? Well, we have to, so the risks are significant. What, what is the level of ambition we have as a nation? What, is it, what are the missions being assigned to the combatant commanders? Are we going to tell, hey, CENTCOM, you know, we know you have a, a turbulent theater. You've had that for decades, but we're just going to take the Air Force out of there because we have an NDS that says go somewhere else. No, we're not going to leave that mission uncovered. We're not going to leave embassies uncovered across the African continent. We're not going to abandon the mission to rescue downed air crew, personal recovery. Are we going to walk away from that or our ability to do uh, airborne air, awareness and, and, and surveillance? Are we going to walk away or not be able to fund the Space Force to not just provide the incredible capabilities it does from face, space, but do so in a contested environment? I, I would argue there is no s combatant commander, there's no geographic or no functional area that we've been, that there's any indication that there's willingness to take risk in the Department of the Air Force. I'd love to see it if there is. No, that's very good. Do you want to add anything to that, Gonzo? Yeah, when I was uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, all the services uh, uh, came to my office periodically and laid briefings down and said, hey, poverty, poverty, poverty. And after a while, you became somewhat uh, used to that. The fact of the matter is, we really have a problem with our Air Force. It really is too small and too old. The risk is, if we continue that trend, we lose. Yeah, very good. Okay, we've got one here for, uh, for you, uh, Gonzo. You mentioned that the Air Force's buildup of its fifth-generation combat forces are far behind its original plans. Programs to acquire the F-35, B-21, and NGAD are meant to address this problem, but as we all know, there's a history of cutting these programs when funding gets tight. What are some of the operational risks of doing so yet again, and particularly, what are the risks to our airmen? Yeah, that's a, a great uh, question. Uh, we, we've seen this story before. We saw the B2, uh, B2 program cut off at 20 and then 21 aircraft. We bought one back. That means today we have 20 B2s that can operate in contested areas. None of our other bombers can. That risk was created by that uh, uh, decision back, back in the 90s. We can't take that kind of a decision and accept that kind of risk in the 2020s, 2030s, and 2040s by prematurely uh, cutting down our plan by of B-21s, uh, NGADs for that matter, F-35s. Uh, we should ramp them up as quickly as we can and buy them as fast as we can to reduce risk to improve the survivability of our forces, to improve our ability, the ability of our nation to go on the offensive 
within hours against China or Russia as necessary to thwart their campaign strategy to seize Taiwan, South China Sea, the Baltic states, or whatever. That requires air power. B-21, with its range, its survivability, its mass, the number of weapons it can deliver per sortie and then return to base and turn for another sortie. That's exactly the kind of capability attributes you would want to blunt and then halt a Chinese invasion. That's not a good candidate for taking money out just because that's where the money is. Thanks for that. Here's, a, here's another really good one. Um, and uh, it comes from uh, uh, Larry Stutzream, um, and for both of you. We've recently heard the other services talk about the need for increased funding so they can realize their future force designs. The Marine Corps has a construct for its future force, which it calls Force Design 2030, and the Navy's Force Design 2045 recently unveiled, envisions a future fleet of 523 ships. Um, just as an aside, I think you both know I've long been a proponent that the Air Force uh, come up with its own force sizing construct, one that's simple and easy to understand, that can explain to a congressman the thread between the national defense strategy down to the number of particular aircraft, for example. Um, General Stutzman asked the same question. Um, when is the Air Force going to come up with a force sizing construct? And, and so the, the issue is, what are your thoughts on this subject? Uh, Gus, you, you were recently in a position to, to discuss this. What do you think? We, we absolutely need a force sizing construct that we can hang our hat on to move forward. You know, But it's a very difficult, it's, it's a hard thing to do. It's very difficult. But I can tell you where we need to start. And to start is what are we doing today? What are the demands on the Air Force today? So uh, it, we, we, the, the, the Joint Staff hosts meetings uh, for global force management. Where do we move the different force elements around the globe? Uh, we have more meetings in the Joint Staff to talk about Air Force capability than any other service, I think by a factor of 10, it seems like. Why? Because there's not enough there. We're constantly talking borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. And now we're borrowing from Peter, Jill, Paul, Mike, and Steve because there's an insufficient capacity. So if the, if the, if the DOD leadership takes interest in the discussion at the limited capacity that we have today, that may open the door for what si fort sizing construct we need to go forward to sustain global, uh, the global demands every day in, in peacetime and also range up to the, uh, to the demands of, of conflict. You know, I have to uh, applaud Congress and the Air Force uh, a couple years ago when they put out the uh, 386 operational squadron, the Air Force we need, which was uh, developed by direction of, of the Congress. That was a cost unconstrained look at what is really needed to implement the defense strategy at a low to moderate level of risk. Now the Air Force fell off that number supposedly, why? because they couldn't afford to build that force. But the fact is, they came out and said, this is what we need, this is what we can afford, and everything that we don't have constitute risk. That's the kind of information Congress needs, the White House needs, the OSD needs, to determine what is acceptable level of risk, 
and how should we fund the Air Force so it can be appropriately sized and have the right mix of capabilities. That will require the Air Force to develop a force sizing construct, as you pointed out, similar to the Marine Corps and Navy's, to lay out those requirements and then define the risk by not being able to achieve those requirements. Yeah, let me just reemphasize. If the Air Force doesn't articulate what it actually needs to execute the national defense strategy, it will never get the resources required to do so. So, you, you know, the notion that, um, well, look, we can't afford it, therefore, you know, we're not going to talk about it, is absolutely insane. Uh, and we need to get on with being honest about the forces, capabilities, uh, in capacity that's required to accomplish them. Or like I said, I go back to what I said earlier. You know, you can either increase the number of resources, you can decrease the demands of the, of the defense strategy. And neither of those two things um, are going to occur. Uh, so we've got to get smarter about the way we spend our money. But spend our money to do what? Execute the national defense strategy. Okay, we've got one. Uh, and due to time, this will probably be our last one. This is from... Uh, uh, Mr. Rick uh, uh, McGovern, uh, great definition of the problem, but articulated solutions have been tried and failed going back 30 years. The only real solution in a relevant time frame is to find new money. Now that's way easier said than done, but the emergency funding but emergency funding bills do get passed every year. What are your thoughts? If you take a look at some charts in our report, uh, uh, you see that uh, defense spending peaked in the 1980s. And there is a little blip in the 20 aughts uh, for to support uh, counterinsurgency, counterterror operations. The last real defense buildup this nation funded was during the Reagan administration. There has not been one since then. An emergency spending bill for a year or two plus up, uh, it's, it's not going to, again, fill the hole in modernized capabilities, in capacity, in experienced airmen, in flying hours, et cetera, been created by decades of, of deficits. We need sustained increased funding. That's why we say 3 to 5% a year growth for the Air Force alone over inflation year by year for at least a decade to fill that. 30-year hold. Gus, anything to add? No, I, uh, without a doubt uh, we, that additional funding has to be, and it needs to be sustained funding. A short burst of funding does, it, it, it's, a, it's a crowd pleaser for the short term, but it doesn't do anything for the long term, and that's what we need. We need a long-term focus and a long-term budget to, to, to actually support that strategy, which is a good one. The NDS is a good strategy, I think, and, but we need a budget to actually support it and then focus on the services that deliver effects in a way that are most valuable for the best use of taxpayer dollars. That's where the focus should be. Well, that's, that's air and space power. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to uh, wrap this up. And unfortunately, we've come to the end of our rollout today. Uh, General Gustella, uh, Gonzo, thanks very much for uh, sharing your insights and for all our participants. You can find a copy of today's paper in the publications section of our website, mitchellaerospacepower.org. Please download it, commit the facts to memory, and use them. So with that, from all of us at Mitchell Institute, have a great aerospace power kind of day.